and welcome to Are We There Yet? The podcast looking at the innovations emerging from the workshops, labs and secret test tracks of Hyundai. Across the series, we've heard about technology which is changing our world. Whether we've been talking about electric racing cars, hydrogen power or sustainable materials, each episode has been a step on the road to cleaner motoring. This edition is taking us even deeper. Today's guest has probably gone further than anyone else, quite literally, to promote clean mobility. I'm Susie Perry and this podcast comes to you from Hyundai Motor. I was thinking, what is a sense of adventure? Is it to push yourself beyond your own limit? Because something you may consider to be adventurous, others may be like, meh. How relative is it? As a child, I built a raft with three of my girlfriends and we raced it down the River Severn, over rapids, over the odd competitor, to hunt for victory. And I absolutely loved the buzz of it. And I've always thought that I'm pretty spirited in that sense. I love to try anything once. I ride horses, motorbikes, anything really with an engine. I've jumped from bridges, flown in fast jets, sailed freezing waters, all in the pursuit of a thrill or to compete for glory. And that's sort of been my level, really. The odd random world record in a group with my TV show that I used to work on years ago. But it's really very relative. And I say that because my guest today made history for being the first person to travel non-stop around the world in a balloon and then circumnavigate the globe in a solar-powered airplane. He's almost out of this world. He's an explorer, a psychiatrist and an ambassador for clean technologies. Bertrand Picard, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. With great pleasure. Bertrand, you've spent your entire life pushing boundaries. You've done some remarkable things, recorded some historic achievements. And I've mentioned a couple of them in the introduction. I'd like to know where did your pioneering spirit and now your passion for clean technologies come from? I think I was really inspired in my childhood by all the explorers I met. Of course, there was my grandfather who was the first in the stratosphere. There was my father who was the first to touch the deepest spot in the ocean with his batiscave, deep sea submarine in the Marina Trench, 11 kilometers down. But there were also all the astronauts, explorers, mountaineers, divers, environmentalists that my father knew and was inviting at home. So I had the opportunity to meet Charles Lindbergh, to meet the early astronauts of the American space program, to witness liftoff of six Apollo rockets. And I remember very well, it was in July 1969. In the same week, my father started a dive in the Gulf Stream for one month with one of his submarines. And I was invited to witness the liftoff of Apollo 11. And in that week, I knew I was going to be an explorer. That was the type of life I wanted to have. It, it must have been incredible to have been surrounded by that kind of company and that kind of essence, really, of, of humanity. And what was it about uh, adventuring then that, that really struck with you? Was it, was it a human pushing themselves to the limit or was it discovery? Was it a combination of all of these things? It was the fact that I was reading all these stories of exploration in newspapers, in books. I was looking at that on TV. And the following days, I was meeting the people. I was talking to them. 
And I saw that they were not supermen. They were just passionate people who had a dream, who dedicated their life to achieve their dream, who put all the effort and did not have any fear to fail. And, and that was so unbelievable, you know, to, 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 to see these people who were writing history and they were taking the time to speak to me. Probably what happened in my mind in these moments is that this experience destroyed completely the gap between the dream and the reality. There was no gap anymore. So, so of course, it's, it's maybe a bit a naive vision, but nevertheless, it gave me the impression that nothing was impossible anymore. I guess meeting these people, you know, was extraordinary. But how, how did you start? Was it the hand gliding that you kind of started with? Well, I started not so well because I was dreaming of exploration, but I had the impression that everything had been achieved. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put their feet on the moon, I was thinking there's nothing left for me. And anyway, I was dreaming of being an explorer and I was afraid to climb in a tree. So it was not a good start for me. <laughs> and uh, what happened is that, you know, I, I started to develop in my heart like a compass with a needle that was not showing the north, but showing the unknown, showing what had not yet been accomplished, what was still to be explored. And each time there was something new, I was thinking, I have to try that. And uh, the first time I saw a hang glider flying in the sky in Switzerland when I was 16 years old, I thought, I have to try that. And it will maybe cure me from my fear of height. And it's exactly what happened. In a few years, I went from the boy who was afraid to climb in a tree to the European champion of uh, aerobatic hang gliding. And this is actually what brought me to become a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, to help people to cultivate their inner skills. It brought me to the exploration of the inner world as much as the outer, outer world. And basically, I was curious. I wanted to understand everything. I wanted to do everything and every opportunity in life. I think I took it to explore it and try to do something with it. Can I ask you about the balloon flight in, in 1999. I think most people, when they were watching that story unfold, would have had the same thought about the fear of dropping out of the sky. Now, I interview a lot of drivers and riders in Formula One and MotoGP, and they don't think about that until they start to get a little older and they see the walls coming in. And they always say, when you feel and see the fear, it's time to retire. So in terms of the fear factor for you doing that flight in the balloon, was there any or did you feel as though you calculated everything that could happen and you managed it in that sense? How, how did you approach that? So, of course, before the flight, I had the fear of failing. I was thinking it's my dream. Uh, I hope it will work. And uh, yeah, I had real big butterflies in the stomach when I arrived on the launch field and I saw the balloon ready to take off and I just had to climb in the gondola and go. Yes, that was very impressive. But once you are really in the situation, you are just doing what you have to do with it, uh, the, the fear almost disappears. So of course, it remains a feeling of 
of respect for what you're doing. You have to be careful. You have to do it well. You have to concentrate. You need to, to focus on the right things. Um, but fear in itself is, is like the signal that you are not connected to yourself. Almost 20 days with the balloon, a lot of planning, pre-planning before that. When you actually achieved that dream, that goal, what were you feeling? I was relieved because the balloon flight around the world was six years of my life with two previous failures. And the first one was a miserable failure. I, I announced that I would fly around the world in the jet streams, a flight of three weeks, breaking all the world records. And after six hours, I was down in the water in the Mediterranean Sea with a technical problem. And uh, that was for me like a vaccination against stupidity. From that moment on, I didn't care so much about what other people would think. So it was, it was an interesting experience. It was not fun. Uh, my daughter, my eldest daughter, she was afraid of going to school. She said, Daddy, my friends are going to make fun of me because you failed so dramatically. And I told her, you know, it's normal to fail if you try something new. Never anybody had done it before, so you have to try. Don't be afraid of failing. And, and she was reassured. She went to school and everything went well. <laughs> the only thing when you fail is you have to try again, but in another way. You each time need to find another technology, another strategy, another solution. And Bertrand, you completed the first global circumnavigation in a solar-powered plane in 2016. Did this idea come after the balloon adventure? Yes, you know what happened is that at the landing of the Breitling Orbiter 3 balloon, there was 40 kilos of propane left out of the 3.7 tons I had when I took off. It was really tight. You know, I succeeded, but no margin. And at this moment, I thought, it's not the sky that is the limit. It's the fuel that is the limit. And I thought, in order to do better, I need to get rid of the fuel. And this is when I started to dream about a solar-powered airplane that would fly with no fuel at all around the world. But of course, from the dream to the success, it took 15 years. It was twice the time that I was thinking it would take. It was at least four times more expensive. But, you know, if you, if you take easy goals, uh, you just, well, everybody will say, okay, great, we'll help you. But it has no value. If you take impossible goals, then you find people to support you who are pioneers, who are very creative, who have a lot of imagination and the team that came around Solar Impulse was an absolutely fantastic team, and this is why we succeeded. Was that the point that you became very interested in clean technologies? Was that when that really clicked for you at the end of the balloon flight? I, I was born and raised in a family that was aiming at protecting the environment. You know, when my grandfather went in the stratosphere, one of his goals was to show that it was possible to fly at very high altitude in thinner air above the bad weather where the fuel consumption of the airplanes would be lower. So his purpose was already ecological. When my father went to the Marina Trench, his goal was to see if there was life in the deepest trenches in the time where all the governments 
wanted to drop their radioactive uh, waste and toxic waste in the bottom of the oceans. And I always understood that scientific exploration has to serve quality of life. And you've been nominated as the UN Goodwill Ambassador for the Environment, that was in 2015, and, and now appointed a special advisor to the European Commission um, last year to search for, for new solutions as part of the Foresight Project, um, which is a green recovery programme. And your partnership with Hyundai began back in 2017, didn't it? There's a lot of companies that are investigating clean technologies. What was it, would you say, um, that particularly inspired you to, to work and come on board with Hyundai? For me, after flying around the world in an electric solar-powered airplane, I could only drive a car that was full electric. And for me, Hyundai had the best example of an electric car because it is affordable, so everybody can buy it. It's very performant, you have a good range, and it's a nice-looking car. So for me, it was really the thing to promote. If you promote an electric car that is really expensive, you give the impression that being ecological is only for the rich people. I wanted to show that it is for everybody. So I started with the Yonic, uh, electric uh, Hyundai, the Yonic, and then as soon as the Kona arrived on the market, I switched to the Kona, which is for me an absolute perfect car for, for everyone. I really want to ask you about the Hyundai Nexo, because in 2019, you again played your part in promoting clean mobility, breaking a world distance record, driving that car. Tell, tell us a bit about that and your impressions of this next generation hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. Yeah, the Hyundai Nexo, it's an electric hydrogen car. You don't have the battery, but you have a fuel cell and you have six kilos of hydrogen in your tank. And uh, this is something that will boom on the market as soon as you will have enough fuel stations with hydrogen. And um, I, I thought I have to show that world records can also be made by normal cars, not only prototypes. So I took the Hyundai Nexo and uh, drove the world record for distance on one uh, single tank of, of hydrogen that was through France. And it was really fun because I was taking politicians, I was taking heads of states, uh, Prince Albert came with me, uh, journalists came with me, and uh, I, I drove there almost 800 kilometers on a the, on the single tank. And that was the world record. And uh, it shows that the hydrogen technology is ready. And now we absolutely need to put enough hydrogen fuel stations everywhere in order to give the wish to people to buy these hydrogen cars. It's quite extraordinary to think that you also had 49 kilometres left in the range at the end of that 778-kilometre journey across France. So uh, still, still more to come. Absolutely. And you know what is extraordinary is that there are some countries that are going faster than others in terms of hydrogen. In a lot of countries of Europe, everybody is waiting for the government to take action. But in Switzerland, it started in a private endeavor. And now the first hydrogen trucks have already arrived on the Swiss market. You can see them driving. And this will really open completely the market of hydrogen mobility in Switzerland. And there are no need for subsidies. You, you see, what is interesting is that 
People always think the hydrogen is only for the future. Electric mobility is for the future. Batteries are for the future. No, no, it's now. You can have full electric cars now. You can have hydrogen cars now with distribution of hydrogen. You can have uh, hydrogen trucks. Everything is available. So now it's not the technology that has to uh, improve. It's the mindset of the people. And this is why pioneering spirit is so important, not only to fly around the world, but in every day's life, in every choice of consumption. You launched the hydrogen mobility in Switzerland in June this year. We talked about it on this podcast previously and how hydrogen will work alongside EVs. But how significant do you feel the development of the hydrogen fuel cell is? What is really important to understand with hydrogen and fuel cells is the fact that it will allow heavy electric vehicles to, to work. In a battery, it's quite fine for light vehicles. When I drive with a Kona, it's perfect, fully efficient. With trucks, with boats, trains, maybe even airplanes, the hydrogen technology is better because you don't have the weight of the, um, of the batteries. You just have a, have a fuel cell. And what I like with the hydrogen technology is that it allows to store solar and wind energy, which are intermittent sources. It allows more energy independence and autonomy. And it also allows to federate all the actors of the market. It allows the oil companies to participate into this new business opportunity because oil producers are people who can also produce hydrogen. They can transport hydrogen. They can sell hydrogen so they can be associated to the energy transition. And this is something very, very good because you make friends in the industry with hydrogen instead of scaring everyone who is not able to participate in it. Let's uh, just jump back a little to the Ionic 5. Now, we've been focusing on this incredible car quite a bit during this series, um, whether it's the groundbreaking design or the use of sustainable materials or indeed the battery. And of course, it's the first vehicle from Hyundai's dedicated battery electric vehicle lineup brand, and you were the first person to drive it. So what was that initial experience like? Well, it was a fantastic experience to get in the car and to drive it. And it was a terribly bad experience to give the car back to Hyundai and not being able to keep it. <laughs> because I can tell you, th this car is like a spacecraft. The shape, you know, it's, it, it, you're, you have the impression to be in Star Trek, which for Picard is quite normal, maybe. <laughs> well, you thought I was going to say you've got the right name, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a spacecraft. It's absolutely beautiful shape. And uh, the performance is incredible. All the options you have inside are incredible. And, uh, you know, it's a car with which you can charge other things. From your car, you can charge an electric bike. You can uh, charge uh, some lights when you go uh, for a picnic, when you go camping. You, it's a car that is not only driving, it's also giving back electricity to, to other items. Yeah, it's like taking your house with you almost, isn't it? Um, it's, it's quite an incredible change to how we normally perceive a car to be. Um, you helped showcase the Ionic 5 at Ever Monaco in 2021 this year, in May. What, what was the reaction like from the guests? Did they see it as groundbreaking? Did they get it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I presented it to Prince Albert, who is a really good friend of mine. And we had a, a good time uh, 
looking at it, sitting in it. And, and uh, you know, Monaco is a good place to show new cars because Monaco is like the temple of automobile racing and demonstrations and industry. And uh, showing the Ionic 5 there was really nice for me. And, and not only this, you know, in Monaco, a few weeks before, I tested the ETCR Hyundai car. It's a racing car on battery, fully electric, and I could drive it. I was driving it in the streets of Monaco. We were lucky enough to have some pieces of the Monaco Formula One racing track that were reserved for us. And I could really drive fast. And I tell you, it's impressive when you get into the tunnel and uh, around the swimming pool, exactly like a Formula One. And I was driving myself with this uh, electric Hyundai racing car. I thought, well, this is really changing the automobile uh, racing uh, tradition. You can do it without fumes. You can do it without noise. You, you had the impression to participate in, in a turning point in the racing sport. Augusto took you out, didn't he? I watched a, a little film that you'd made. Before taking Prince Albert uh, with me in the car, I had to learn how to drive the car and it was Augusto who, <laughs> who, who taught me. So I, I started with a real racing driver with me and uh, then I could drive myself. But the, the car is yeah. absolutely amazing. And you know, it, it's a car that is similar to the one that people can buy. It, it's not a prototype like a Formula One that is completely different. It's, it's the same shell. Of course, it's faster. Of course, you have more batteries. But it shows that now the performance is not just coming out of a prototype that is incredible, but the performance comes because it's electric. And His Serene Highness uh, Prince Albert obviously has great green credentials and is always looking at ways, isn't he, to try to to help the environment to improve. And also at Ever this year, you spoke about the Solar Impulse Foundation's 1000 Solution Challenge. Now, can you tell us what that is and, and what do you hope to achieve with this? Yes, I, I noticed that most of the environmentalists present the protection of the environment as something expensive, something that requires a lot of sacrifice from people, reducing mobility, reducing comfort, reducing growth and consumption. And it doesn't give a very attractive vision of ecology. I wanted to give a positive image of ecology. I wanted to show that it is possible to be financially profitable when you protect the environment, to create jobs, to have better uh, business opportunities for the industry. Basically, I wanted to make it attractive for the key decision makers. And the best way to prove that was to show examples. So I launched the challenge of the 1000 solutions at the Solar Impulse Foundation just after landing in uh, Abu Dhabi with Solar Impulse. And uh, the goal was to identify a thousand technologies, systems, products, material, devices that would protect the environment but also create jobs and generate profits. And in four years, we have announced the 1,000 solutions identified, but much more than that, because since last April, we had 200 more solutions. So now we are at 1,200. And uh, they are examples and proofs that the protection of the environment is more profitable than the destruction of the environment. And now 
I have a lot of support from big corporations, even from countries or regions, from the political world, in order to bring these solutions to everyone. Because very often they are prisoners of research labs, of startups. They don't make it to the market because no one knows about them. And my goal is really to promote them, to be able to bring investors to fund these startups and develop. And we are really on a good track for that. So are you continuing now? You're currently traveling the globe to present governments and large companies with, with the tools that they need then uh, to be more more ambitious in terms of environmental policies? Yes, because to be honest, you see a lot of governments who are setting goals to be carbon neutral in 2050, but they don't really know how to reach these goals. So what I want to do is to bring them all these 1,200 solutions as tools to reach their goals. Bertrand, when you look back, I don't know whether you have time, I can't imagine that you possibly do, but when you look back at what you've achieved in your life so far, what are the things that make you feel most proud, I'm wondering? To have dared to try new things and to have had the perseverance to go through all the setbacks and all the problems and finally succeed. Because uh, I tell you, there were moments that were not easy. With Solo Impulse, it was 15 years that were really difficult. The success, of course, the success is fantastic, but the success is the consequence of something that has been done correctly. Mm. It seems very apparent when I'm talking to you that because of the things that you have tried and the things that you have achieved and the sense that you make and the knowledge that you have, you do seem to be the perfect ambassador to try to help this globe come together and find better solutions for the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, this podcast is called Are We There Yet? And in the context of clean mobility, how much progress has the world made so far and how much further do you feel it has to go? It has to go much further. We should never stop we should continue to promote clean cars, clean mobility. We have to continue to uh, promote uh, clean technologies, renewable energies. Uh, there is so much solutions that we are not using enough. So, of course, for me, I feel great because I have solar panels at home. I have a fully insulated house. I have heat pumps and I drive an electric car, the, the, the Hyundai Kona. So it's great. But now you need everybody to be able to live in a clean way like that. Are there any major milestones that we can look out for um, on the path to clean mobility that, that are coming quite soon, do you think? What is encouraging is the fact that the European community has understood that hydrogen is now a new market for Europe. This is very promising. They can produce hydrogen, hydrolyzers, uh, solar energy to produce the hydrogen, they can do it in Europe. So uh, the, the, the Green Deal is something, you know, this new climate and economical action for the, from the European community. This is something that is showing the good way forward. And this should be an example for the world. And what has Hyundai accomplished since you first came on board as a brand ambassador? Do you see specific things that have happened? What has been achieved is the price reduction of the electric cars. Uh, it's cheaper and cheaper 
that means more affordable for, for everyone. This is good because electric cars shouldn't be only cars that are reserved for rich people, must be available for everyone. You have the technology that is improving with hydrogen. You can have very long range with hydrogen. There start to be hydrogen stations in Switzerland. In, uh, in France, you have hydrogen stations for taxis in Paris. You, you have several hundred taxis. Most of them are Hyundai that are driving passengers around the city with hydrogen. Everybody speaks of hydrogen. Everybody speaks of electric mobility. Things are moving. Now they have to move fast. They have to move with courage and they need to move everywhere. And this is why I am an ambassador for Hyundai. I'm an ambassador for clean technologies. I'm an ambassador for renewable energies. I would like like this to motivate as many people as possible to see that the future is already now. The future is not something that has to come in the following years. The future is already here. This is what allows these new technologies. And uh, it's a fantastic impression when you sit in a completely new type of mobility and you start to, to drive with no noise, with no vibration, with no fuel, with no pollution, and you have much more performance. Bertrand Picard, thank you so much for your time. It's been so fascinating to talk to you. Uh, good luck with this adventure. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you're excited by the ways that Hyundai are developing clean mobility, you can find out more at Hyundai.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast from your usual podcast provider. It means that you'll never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.